Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and I'm back. Thank you all for your patience during this time, and there's no better way to start back up again than with my fourth conversation with the great Gary Weta. You of course know him as the writer of Rogue One, as well as Star Wars Rebels, and many other books and comics. But today we're focusing on his newest work, his novel Gundog. We explore creativity, fandom, and the current media landscape, and I learned a ton. I hope you enjoy this conversation with this incredible artist. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 153, Caravan of Witta. Well, we have Gary Witta again on the show, fourth time, I think. I, I tried to look it up last night. My numbering is always a little off, but fourth time means I, I was, I don't know what to call this. I don't know if we go to episode one. I don't know if we go Phantom. Phantom oh, because every title is like a different. Yeah, it was uh, Gary Witta Strikes Riff. Back, Revenge of Gary Witta. I don't know. Like, so I don't know what we do. I don't know how to proceed. I mean, really. there's lots. I mean, there's, there's plenty of other titles out there i don't know yeah sure. but you're talking about like going to the the ewok movies so right not that gary Whitta, yeah, we? maybe about when i'm on for the eighth time we'll do the caravan of widow or something caravan of Whitta, yeah we'll, we'll keep do, okay, now let's do caravan of widow why not let's uh let's do it let's roll with it yeah i think and we that... do the widow and we do the widow holiday special when we get really desperate Ooh, yeah but if you uh email me around christmas time and we'll uh <laughs> we'll yeah. have songs yeah. and dance and then so. and then having and then having put that podcast out you can then disown it and right. pretend that it never existed. It's only up for one day. It's only up for one day and then I, I remove it. Yeah. These are all great ideas. And this is why I like having you on. But thank you again for coming on. This is always a treat and always a pleasure. No, and th thank you for having me. As I as I mentioned, you know, I, I always try not to outstay my welcome or, 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 or take anything for granted. But, you know, Star Wars is kind of a gift that keeps on giving. So when I have something even that's like non-Star Wars related uh, to promote, even if it is in kind of the same kind of sci-fi sci genre space it's it's lovely to have built up over the years a, a a number of star wars um podcasts who always seem happy to have me and i'll come on and i'll i'll talk about what I, what i'm doing now but i'm always happy to talk about my time in the in the star wars galaxy as well i think it might have been one of the last times we talked and i think it was the martian uh, andy weir said it like the kindling right like you 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 create, yeah that's uh, right you create an audience you create a kindling and this is what we're i i am proud to be part of the gary Wood kindling so you anytime <laughs> you want you, you come back on but let's i mean we can dive into gundog and then and then we can kind of figure out where this is going to go uh because yeah you know, let's uh, like, let's absolutely talk and find some excuse to talk about star wars because i you know you want your uh, star wars uh uh fans listeners tuning in going Where, where's my star wars and I still have thought. I still have a lot of thoughts on Star Wars. The weird thing is, um, I'll, I'll start off with this. What, one of the weird caveats I I have to um, put forward now. I get it, get out in front of whenever I do a Star Wars related interview or podcast or any kind of because you know Star Wars always comes up even if it's not related because it's right. the thing I'm best known for. I always say, don't ask me about the TV shows because I haven't seen any of them. Mm -hmm. And that's and that seems like a weird thing for someone like me to say. Um, because, you know, I worked in the Star Wars universe for five years, right? I co-wrote a movie. I worked on two seasons of Star Wars Rebels. I've worked on the books. I've worked on the comics. I'm very, very Star Wars-y. And yeah, even though Star Wars now is mostly expressed through TV, somebody mentioned to me recently, it's funny to think about, there's been more live action Star Wars um, made in the last four years than in the last 40, just in the, just in the number of hours, right? Yeah. And it's not even close. Right. Yeah. Because TV hour after hour after hour. And there's so many of these Star Wars shows and people, so many people during Andor said, have you seen Andor? Have you seen Andor? I said, no, I've not seen it. Well, when are you going to get around? To it? Well, you, you worked on Rogue One. Um, 
here's the here's the truth of it and i don't think i've ever actually spoken about this uh, on a podcast before but like i i'm tired of kind of like talking around it <laughs> My time, my time on Star Wars, while absolutely a blessing, and I wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't change it for anything. I wouldn't give up those blue letters for anything. Yeah. Kind of exhausted me a little bit, just as a Star Wars fan, and that was yeah. the thing that I was worried about going in. I had this conversation with myself when, when I was there was never a real conversation about whether or not I was going to take the job. Of course, I was going to take the job when I was offered it because um, it was my dream. But there was a, like, you know, you're always thinking about like, what's the, what are the bad things that can happen? Well, maybe the movie's not very good and people won't like it and you'll be that guy. Oh, you're the guy that messed up Star Wars. Fortunately, that didn't happen, right? Rogue One is very well liked as are, you know, the other Star Wars things that I've I've done. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing I was thinking was, because I, uh, I, I could, I do what's known as catastrophizing, which is again, always thinking about what's, obsessing about what's the worst thing can happen or what's the <laughs> downside. Right. Um, and one of the things I thought was, will this will this forever change my relationship with Star Wars? Like, I won't ever be a f I won't just be a fan anymore. I won't be able to you know once you've seen how the sausage is made, once you've been inside the machine, because I knew that this, I knew that this was true generally from my time working on on movies. Is that I, it's very hard for me just to watch movies and enjoy them purely as like a moviegoer anymore like it still can mostly do that but a lot of a lot of the time i'm when i'm watching movies i'm thinking oh, i see what they did I, I, I see where the studio kind of interfered there and made them do, i bet they didn't want to do that or you know i'm constantly kind of seeing like the the developmental process behind the film because once you've worked in it for so long you can't it's like you can't unsee it right mm -hmm. and i wondered if the, i wondered if that would happen with with star wars as well that if it would like change my relationship with star wars as a fan and it kind of it kind of did a little bit. Like I still have all my fond memories of Star Wars. I still love it. But like I I I don't feel like I have the ability to just go back and watch it as a fan anymore. And I still think that again, I wouldn't change anything if that was that if that's the trade-off uh for having to to actually be part of the Star Wars universe, I'll take it. But I don't know. It's like I just haven't felt like a really strong compulsion to to go back and watch any of the the new stuff since I was done with it. And I hear that some of it's really good. Yeah. Um, but I don't know, even, even stuff like Ahsoka, which obviously is so closely associated with Rebels, which I worked on, or Andor, which is so closely associated with Rogue One, which I worked on. I, I feel like it's going to take a while. I mean, I worked for Star, I worked for five years inside the Star Wars universe and I've, and, and it's been, I think probably it's been several years since I did any, I think the last thing I did was the Empire Strikes Back book. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've been out of it for a while and like, but I feel like I haven't yet kind of fully I think it'll happen and I will go and I'll watch all the shows, but I want to wait until I'm kind of like fully recalibrated and work. I don't know if any of this makes sense, but like no, it's no, going to take a while to flush all of the working on Star Wars out of my system so I can just be a fan again, right? And then and sit back and just watch the shows and watch the new movies kind of on their own on their own merits. But yeah, it's it, it's it's been a weird kind of um, aftertaste. The, the experience was brilliant. I still love Star Wars, but I feel like the, if there's been a cost to it, it's it has affected my ability to just sit down and watch Star Wars as a fan, like just you know, un, you know, unadulterated and just enjoy it. Yeah, it's a symptom of creative work and work in general that some people don't kind of hit on. Like I worked in sports for a long time, and I worked for my favorite team, and I have not gone back to a, a sports game for that team in almost a decade now because I was there, I was on the sidelines, I worked, and now it's like oh, like I don't. I can't really like balance that experience in a way. And you know, there's an interesting kind of shift with how people consume media where they want to be a content creator. They want to be a creator in general, as opposed to just being a fan. And it's an interesting shift to that sense of 
once you kind of hit a certain threshold as a professional, then you're you're missing what it is as a fan, which like you said, that's a trade-off and you're aware of that trade-off, but you kind of you can never really go back. You can never really kind of go back to like what you said, like you can't unsee how the sausage is made. Yeah, you, you, yeah, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube or whatever 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 analogy you want to make. And I think I may have talked about this in one of my many appearances on the show. <laughs> Before, as it goes both ways, I think I may have mentioned that one of the things that I learned when I when I auditioned or interviewed for the Rogue One job, I talked a lot about my experiences as a fan and you know all the things that I you know how much I loved the movies and how I played with the toys and they really gave what made me want to make movies, and that's all considered a plus, right? Oh yeah, we want people that love Star Wars to come work on this, and that's right, you do, but you also have to have a certain kind of discipline right. where you learn to kind of leave the fanboy at the door when you walk in you have to become a different person there's a reason why they don't just let fans make things right because (laughs) and there's a reason why a lot of the fan fiction out there and a lot of the fan films are bad right it's it's and i mean there's a, a lot of actual films and actual fiction is bad as well i'm not saying that fan stuff's any worse but when when the fan stuff is bad it's because they're letting i think it's because they're letting the fan drive the bus right rather than letting the artist or the creator think about what's actually going to make the best story and that was definitely an experience that i went through i i started on rogue one thinking oh well, it's got to have this it's got to have that we've got to have all the fan service we've got to have all the easter eggs and the references and the movie of course the movie does have that it has those things but like if i had been left in charge i think it would have been it would have had too much of that stuff and i remember talking to gareth and and uh and doug chang and ryan johnson and some of the other people that were kind of you know around me when i was when i was pitching this stuff is that they they were they were always i think a bit more even gareth who's a huge huge fan didn't feel that much of it he wanted definitely wanted to have like recognizable star wars stuff in the movie but the um the the mandate from Lucasfilm as well was like we don't want don't want to see all the same old stuff like give us new things that we haven't seen before um and so it took me a while to kind of recalibrate again to kind of like leave the fanboy stuff behind and just not think about it in terms of like what is the 10 year old version of me want to see because that's not necessarily the audience right? right um and and now fun and now strangely enough having left the fanboy at the door I now have I now have to kind of you check your coat at the door, right? But you have to remember to get it on your way back out. Yeah. I'm still in the process of kind of getting get, putting my fanboy coat back you can't on. Find your ticket, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I, I I don't know if this would if this is gonna make sense to anyone else who's listening because so few people have been through this kind of experience. But like you said, I, I worked in sports as well for a for a brief time. And it makes me hard to watch sports sometimes because I know because I know what an ugly business it is, right? Yeah. And again, you know how they say like um, it's sometimes it's sometimes it can be risky to meet your heroes, right? Because if they act like a dick to you, like you can't you can't you just can't enjoy their movies anymore because you'll always remember that that time that they were like mean to you at a restaurant or something. Um, and it's kind of like that. Not that anyone at on Star Wars was mean to me or that I had a bad experience. I I, I loved it. The, I'm so glad the movie came out the way that it did. But going through that machine changes you, and you can ask anyone who went through it. The long, you know, even if they have a happy story to tell at the end, I think a lot of them will talk about that kind of weird side effect after effect that lingers for a while afterwards. I think, I mean, even this show and you being such an early guest and now, you know, it's been four years, five years, whatever it is, and how even just my personal experience has changed. You know, I write for starwars.com now. I write for the magazine, right? Like in all these little things where I kind of feel myself 
separated in a sense. Yeah. And do you feel yourself kind of crossing that barrier as well from like fan to now you're actually part of the the machine? There, well, it's, a, it's, it's like a weird, you have to kind of always be thinking of both sides. And that's mm -hmm. what I, I take pride in that, right? Where I can... I can see where the need is as a professional or as a business or as whatever. And that's what I try to do when I'm paid to do that, right? But then then you're on the opposite side as a fan. And for instance, I got the Andor episodes. They sent the first six or whatever to us as screeners. And then they moved the release date. And so for, mm -hmm. I think it was like two months, two and a half months, I sat on those Andor episodes. I had watched them. I didn't have anyone to talk to them about. Right? I just kind of sat there and had them for work and had them for a, you know, for a purpose, but it was like you, you kind of almost like saw it in a vacuum and then had to kind of then justify it as a fan or, or approach it as a fan. And so it was almost being able to view that two different ways was a very interesting experience. And it's the same way where I'm, you know, working on these projects and doing all these things that you can't really talk about and no one will know for a year or whatever it is. And it really does change your approach and does change how you view things and mitigates enthusiasm in one sense, but I also think makes you better at at a role, I think, I mean, it's, it goes with any, some people might not be aspiring creators or aspiring writers or whatever it might be, but I think it goes to any job, right? Like for instance, I worked for Mondo. I don't know if you know Mondo, the posters, mm -hmm. vinyls, and I was a huge, a huge Mondo fan um, for years, for a decade. And I would like sleep in my car to wait in the lines to the poster shows and all this stuff. And then I got a job working at Mondo. Uh, and you kind of, you see the inside you meet all the people you are seeing how the sausage is made and and you then you know you stop collecting the posters as much and you stop engaging yeah the media as much. It's, it's like, just like what, it's part of it you, you give it's like something. you don't really want the magician to show you their tricks right you do but then you don't like because part of the magic of magic is not knowing how it's done right? right and the inquisitive part of my brain always wants to know how the trick is done and then it's it's kind of satisfying to when they show you but then, but then it's like the mad, the mystery is gone, the magic's gone, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I th I th I think that's a thing that kind of shows up in all uh, walks of life. Is that if there's a thing that you love, as soon as you start doing it, like on a professional basis, or you become related to it in a way where you're part of making it, yeah, it it changes your relationship with it. Not in, not necessarily in a good or bad way. It's just different. It is different, and I think I don't want to say everyone should have that experience, but it is. I I do think that it tempers again going back to star wars as an example not to like be specific but there's so much like vitriol surrounding anything star wars right and so many like questions and so many like oh uh, conspiracy theories but again once you're kind of in it even a little bit and or if you're just in any professional setting knowing how creative decisions are made you realize like there is no actual vitriol it's just people working and and decisions right. being made and yeah, like, of course. And I think healthy... that, that's one of the things. And it's obviously, there's only so much you can say publicly. But every anytime I see one of these YouTubers or whatever, um, talking, you know, again, especially the negative ones kind of talking about why decisions were made, or what's what what has happened, or what's going to happen is sitting there from an actual position of knowledge. It's like the ignorance is astounding. And they're so confident in their ignorance as well. Like they're so sure of their opinions. And I'm sitting there going like that. I know for a fact that you are so, so wrong. Right. And yet here you are kind of expounding as though, you know, you've got some kind of inside track. I've, I, I got to say, I've been really, really unfortunate. I, I, sorry, really, really fortunate. I hear all the time about the discourse, the toxic, all fandoms have it, right? Marvel has it, you know, you name it. Video, obviously a lot of it in, in the video game world where, where I'm from. Um, and I, I've seen it as well because, you know, you can't not if you're even tangentially involved in the Star Wars universe, some of that toxicity is going to 
is going to seep through. And if you watch you know, the way that YouTube works, if you watch one of these malignant videos out of curiosity, suddenly now YouTube is going to give you 50 more. Yeah, oh, you more. must like assholes who don't know anything about Star Wars. Right. Um, no, I really don't. I just want to just, I, there was one thing in that one video that was, I have to go back and say, like, remove this from my watch history so you don't right. give me any more of these. Um, but I was really, really fortunate because, you know, this, this, real, this, this recent Disney era, uh, in terms of the fandom and the discourse, there's there has been a lot of toxicity, right? And, and you know, people who went after JJ, they went after Ryan, they went after you know Kathy, they went after you know a little, a little, basically a little bit of everything. Um, and yet, I, I know I know that Rogue One has a handful of haters out there as well. But like, I was really fortunate in, especially how visible online I am. It's like really easy to reach me. That I saw very very little of that, and maybe it's because the movie. Um, it w was was largely well liked. I think of the Disney era, it's probably the most broadly liked one out mm -hmm. of what the five that yep. have been made right yeah. so far. The the three uh, saga movies and the two spinoffs. Maybe that's part of the reason for it. Um, but I, I've been real. I, I don't know if I were Ryan, if I were if I were you know JJ or Kathy or one of these people that's like taken a lot of you know. I mean, maybe I, they're probably more mature than me and just like they either don't even look at it or just shrug it off. But I would find it really wounding to see people like that, like you know, kind of going as hard. If someone went as hard at me, you know, in like some two-hour YouTube takedown, as much as I again I can say, oh, but you don't know what you're talking about. Sure. It still hurts, right? Oh, like yeah. the, the people still lay awake at three o'clock in the morning thinking about that stuff. You don't want that negativity. Um, I, I think as artists, we're all very fragile, and so I, you know, I I, I often wonder how, again, not just in Star Wars, but look at Zack Snyder. Like you name you name it, right? Yeah. Anyone who's very visible and making work that tends to be very polarizing, and people split off into these love it or hate it camps. Honestly, I I I don't know how you develop that thicker skin because it's. So sometimes it gets really vitriolic. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. You said uh, it's like a win or lose almost. It's media has turned into going back to our sports talk. It's turned into like you're a fan of a team, and every other team is bad. Or you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's like it's tr it's completely tribal. We're seeing it right now. I don't know how much you follow the video game world, but you know, Starfield is this right. huge video game that just came out, right? And it's an Xbox exclusive. Like it's on PC as well, but it's not on PlayStation. Microsoft right. owns Bethesda. And because it's, it's seen as kind of a champion of, you know, the Xbox platform, all the PlayStation fans have decided that it must be terrible, right? Because right. they, they don't get to play it, so it must be bad. Right. But also because, you know, Bethesda as well has historically been a very polarizing company. People, people mostly love their games, but people don't like them, are very vocal about it. And so that was just like a, like a, like a perfect storm for, for what, to watch everybody kind of retreat into their kind of polarized camps and, you know, people that have, people that had decided they loved or hated the game yeah. even before they had played it. Um, just based, just based on their kind of pre-existing tribal affiliation. There's a, there's a thing in politics. I'm, sh I'm sure you've seen it where, you know, they'll, they'll find like a Trump fan, for example, and say, well, what do you think of these policies that Trump is proposing? And she was, and, and they'll say, Oh, I think, I think those are great. And they'll say, well, actually, those are Biden policies. Now, what do you think about them? And they go, oh no, they well, they must be terrible then, right? right? And it's not about the thing; it's about how it how it aligns with your pre-existing affiliation or whatever prejudice you know prejudice you may already have. Right. And so, and I think, and we see that everywhere in pop culture. And like you said, it's not just like sports; it's a combat sport now, right? Where the way to get views, the way to get attention, is to be as controversial and toxic and say as many outrageous things as possible and a lot of a lot has been spoken about this but that's now 
you know, where, you know, the, the kind of algorithmically generated culture that we live in, where, you know, saying outrageous and often horrible shit, even if it's outrageously wrong, is is the way to kind of, you know, rise to the top. Like, you're going to get noticed, right? right. A, 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 a considered, thoughtful opinion these days is far less likely to um, get uh, traction than someone just being very loud and very obnoxious saying, like, how dare you say that, right? right. Um, and that's why they say don't feed the trolls, but, like, we never seem to learn that lesson. I guess shifting to you, what what makes you motivated to create in that environment, right? You're, you're, you're making your own world, you're making your own stories now. Is there a part of you that wants to shy away from, from being in the public eye and creating in a public eye, or does it motivate you to just like put out the best work you can and to like tell the story that you want to tell no matter what? I don't really have much of a choice because I'm, I, li I literally am not qualified to do anything else. Like <laughs> I can't, I don't know how to do anything else. Yeah. Like if I didn't have this job, like, I, I, I don't have, any other skills, any other marketable skills. Like ever since I was a kid, like English was the only topic and the only subject in school that I was good at or enjoyed doing. It was clear that I was, I would be a writer because it was all, all I was interested in and I and wasn't very good at anything else. So I'm kind of stuck with it. But beyond that, like, yeah, I'm, all creative people I think are driven to create, but they all know that there is this kind of Faustian bargain that you enter when you, when you put creative work out into the public sphere that, you know, when people love it, it's great, but when they hate it, it sucks. And in fact, my curse is that the way that my brain is wired is that positive feedback and positive criticism and five-star reviews just kind of roll right off of me. Like right. I just shrug them off. Like they don't, they don't, <laughs> I, don't I don't walk around like in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of post-coital afterglow all day because like I got a five-star review. They like, I kind of go, Oh, okay, great. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't make me happy. But like that one star review will put me in a bad mood all day. <laughs> Um, someone someone described it once as like Tetris um, that your your achievements disappear but your failures mm -hmm. stack up um, and that's and that's often how it feels. I, I mean I mean I can tell you when After Earth came out, you know I worked on the Will Smith movie After Earth, which you know was a critical and commercial failure, and I was in a pretty deep depression for a while after that because I because it was horrible to see even though the finished film doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to what I originally wrote because it went through many other writers and got sure. changed, chopped and changed around after I left. Um, my name's still on it. You know, people to this day still go, oh, but you wrote After Earth. Like they still think that's some kind of, some kind of own. Right. Or, oh, they got me. But it's like, I own all, yeah, I own all of my failures, all of my public failures, whether the, the, the ones that I feel responsible for or not. Like I'll happily own all of them. And I'm, I'm at peace with, with, with the mistakes that I've made. And I think failure is, you know, wasn't it Yoda talked about how like failure is the greatest teacher. Great. And he's absolutely right. One of the wisest things he ever said. Um, and I also believe, and it's not my quote, I stole it from someone that failure isn't uh, the opposite of success. It's a part of it. And you know, if you learn, if you can take from each failure, what lessons it can teach you and apply that to the next thing, that's the only way you're, you're ever going to improve or get better. That doesn't mean that failure in the moment doesn't absolutely suck. It does. It really stings and it's really painful. After Earth was a really painful experience for me and every time i put out a new piece of work like i have this new book out and that's exciting but it's also terrifying because what if people don't like it right, right. what if what if i throw a party and nobody shows up what if everybody hates me and you know we all have that kind of creative um you know imposter syndrome that kind of inner voice that's saying everyone's gonna hate it everybody hates you like that's true of so many creators even even the most successful ones you'll ever meet will tell you they all they all have that inner critic that inner voice that's constantly trying to put them down um, and it's, and it's hard. Yeah. It's like, there's some, sometimes like joy and satisfaction is really, really hard 
to be found in in our business. And you, I, I've got to get better at learning to enjoy good things when they happen. I think not just in my creative work, but in but in life. Yeah, I think. I mean, again, we talk a lot about the negativity, and I think there was a there's a shift, and a lot of people like to praise like. Again, going back to Star Wars, like, oh, we're, we're a positive Star Wars podcast or we're a positive Star Wars, whatever. I'm like, well, that's that's also, I think, missing some of the point in the sense where it's, I think you, you have to surround yourself with both the good and the bad, but learning how to respond to both, I think, is very important. And learning how to not only, yes, things are negative, and especially when you're a public-facing person, like, yes, people can be very negative towards you. But I do think it's interesting that there's this underlying, you know, self-introspection or self-doubt that everyone has and comes out in a variety of different ways. And being creative in spite of that or being creative as part of that, I think, is is enormous. No matter what, again, we've, we're talking about writing, we're talking about creating, but I think that can go into job and go into personal life and go into whatever. Oh, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's everywhere. I think that, and I think the one thing that a lot of the online troll, and again, I've been very lucky. I don't get a lot of online hate. I'm really lucky. I think it's also because like I have hair trigger block on all social media. Like if you want to <laughs> take a shot at me, make it a good one because it's the only one you'll ever get. Like gone. you're yeah. gone. Yep. Um, but I think what a lot of, a lot of people don't understand and why, and why you see so many um, creatives on social media just shrug these people off. Um, is that even though it does often sting when people say mean things or don't like your work, I guarantee you the worst thing, the worst criticism you can think to say to me is not as bad as the stuff that I say to myself ten times a day. <laughs> right. Like I am by I am my best, I am my own best troll. Right. right. I can come up with stuff far better than you because I know myself better than you. Um, when you take a shot at me, I know that you don't really know me, you don't really know my work, you're just like trying to get attention or be mean. Um, but when I criticize myself, you know, that that has much more meaning because like, I know my own flaws and my own my own weaknesses. So I don't know. Like I, said, I, I, my, I guess my original point is just I've been really lucky that I've not had to deal with a lot of that, even though, again, I've put out work that people haven't really liked. I put out work that's had mis mixed reception. I put out pe work that people have really liked. I've done kind of the whole spectrum of it. I just somebody I, I think maybe it, maybe it was a therapist or a friend said to me one time, you've got to give yourself permission to be happy. And that's uh, that was like a, like in life. But I think that you've got to, you've, I, if I could develop one skill is I would be I would get better at learning to enjoy success yeah. when it does come, because it's so rare in this business that like you should you should enjoy it. Like, don't let it go to waste. Well, let's talk a little bit about success. Uh, and this might be premature, but I have only seen good things about Gundog. I'm excited to read Gundog. I just finished a book today and I was like, okay, now next up, talk to me a little bit about the process because last time we talked, it was right before the launch or maybe right at the launch of the podcast and the audio yeah. and the experience of it all. And then I was very impressed with, again, you being able to just, you create and you're trying to navigate this new world of media and you have to do as much as you yeah. can. Uh, so I, I, I probably talked about kind of the, the 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 broader picture when when we would when I was here talking about the audio version because this it, it's weird that this is kind of now it had like two launches two different lives first as an audio book uh, and now as the the actual written book that the audio book was based on I kind of ended right. up doing it in a weird way because I didn't have much of a strategy I was kind of making it up as I go along but I think what I talked about last time was how the way that I now approach my original work is increasingly to not really try to get it in through the front door. Mm -hmm. um, like, oh, here's a movie about, you know, a girl who finds a 60 foot tall 
600 ton, you know, war mech and uses it to fight off, you know, an alien invasion of post-apocalyptic Earth. That's a $100 million movie, right? No one's going to make that because I'm not Christopher Nolan or I'm not JJ I'm not, or, or Spielberg or someone who, you know, can... Sure. But just based on the fact that it's them doing it, right? People are going to be interested. I'm not anywhere near that level. And so original work is really, really, it, it always has been, but I think increasingly now in a world where everything is Star Wars, everything is Marvel, everything is Lord of the Rings, everything is Harry Potter, everything is IP, everything is content. Um, I saw, it was, a, it was like David Zaslav the other day saying, well, the problem we have at Warner Brothers is that we haven't been uh, exploiting our DC and, and Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings properties enough. Really? Because it seems like you do that all the time. Right. How many Batman movies have there been in the last 10 years? A lot, and there's more coming. Um, and so it, because, because the, you know, the handful of like major corporations that can make, you know, a, a, a big movies on that level are now, you know, are, are so risk averse and really are just concerned with like, what can we continue to iterate on? Like, how do we make more of the things that we know people already like and show up for? How do we minimize the risk of failure? Well, one way to do that is just to keep making stuff that we know that we know people like. The problem is if you keep giving people too much of the same stuff, they will eventually get sick of it. Right. I really like Indian food, but if you only gave me Indian food the rest of my life, I would eventually go, can I please have something else? I'm sick of this now. I think it was Stephen, was it? No, it was Mitch Hedberg, uh, the late great stand-up comedian who said, when you do a stand-up act, it can't be it can't be like pancakes. All exciting at first, but by the end, you're fucking sick of them, right? That's that's the, you know, you never want to make, you never want like your, your media, your content, your movie diet to be just like never-ending pancakes. There has to be variety. And I think there's less and less variety out there because it's harder and harder for original ideas to to break through um, the system. And so rather, like 10 years ago, I would have written Gundog as a spec screenplay and nobody would have made it. The the the, the analogy I always use is like if, if Suzanne Collins had written the, the Hunger Games as a spec screenplay, you and I have never heard of the Hunger Games. That never gets right. made. You wrote it as a book, which, you know, got a jillion bajillion uh, readers and so people were lining up to make the movie and so that's kind of been like the strategic part of like i just want to tell stories and i don't want to waste my time i want my stories to find an audience i don't want to waste my time spending six weeks or six months working on something that no, then like maybe 20 people around hollywood read and say ah this isn't really for us and then no one else ever reads it sits on a shelf that's heartbreaking for me and so i i started thinking in, in recent years about what are other ways that i can get stories to the surface that audience in a way that audiences can find them and i actually have some creative control because in hollywood as a writer you don't have any that will bring me some kind of satisfaction and so books are you know, books comics podcasts there are all different ways to tell stories now um and so with gundog i was like well i'm going to write this as a book um and this was during the pandemic and uh, i discovered that um, if you're going to self-publish a book, which there was, was originally my plan, um, one third of all book sales now are audio books, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that, that's a lot. One in three books that are sold are actually books that people are listening to rather than, you know, turning the pages and reading. So that, well, shit, if I'm going to self-publish the book, I need to, I guess, self-produce the audio version. Uh, so I did that. I was lucky enough to kind of rope in some, some really talented uh, actors and um, uh, really talented composer who, you know, helped me make nine hours of audio. We put that's when I was last on the show, that's what we were talking about. We put out Gundog as a nine hour um, episodic podcast. It was essentially just the book. If you've ever listened to an audio book, that's what it was. Um, and the podcast ended up being so successful that the book that I was going to publish ended up, I ended up um, doing a deal with a publisher 
for them to publish it in kind of a, in a, in a bigger way, but it meant it would take longer for the, originally it was going to be the podcast would come out and then the book right after. But then a publisher stepped in and said, Hey, this podcast is really successful. Do you want to like publish the actual book with us? And I, it sounded great, but you know, for a publisher to kind of spin up everything and like market it and get it out there, it takes a while longer. So it's actually been almost now a full year since Gundog, the audio book was out and it's still out. If you want to, if you prefer to listen to your books, then read them. You just type Gundog into like any podcast provider and it'll pop right up. There's nine hour long episodes and they're really, really good. I'm really proud of them. Uh, but, you know, for old fashioned folk like me who like to read books, now the book is actually out. And yeah. so um, it's, you know, it's a, and it's a podcast is great, but it's not a physical thing that you can hold. And now I have like a physical, uh, you know, the, you know, when people talk about, oh, I like the smell of paper and the page, turning the page and just the feel of a book in my hand. I'm more of an e-reader. I, I'm happy to read books on my Kindle, but like, I don't know when it's your own book, you do want the smell of the pages. You do yeah. want to feel it physically in your hand. And so it's been really, I literally went around some bookshops in San Francisco yesterday just to see it on a shelf. I was like, oh, there it is. There's my book. It's on a shelf because it came out this week. And it's just, it's, that, that is, that I do get satisfaction from. Like regardless of what people may now think of it, if they love it or hate it, just the fact that it exists and I birthed it and I got it into the world. Every time that happens, it feels like a small miracle. So yeah, I did. I did feel some satisfaction yesterday when I was going around, look, just just looking at it on the shelf in a bookstore. Yeah. We we live in a digital world, and like you were saying, how I consume my books right now. I have one physical book on my nightstand. I have my Kindle underneath, and then I listen to an audiobook when I'm in the car. So I have three books going at all times. Okay, bad you know bad times, but that's just why do you life. have one physical book that isn't on Kindle? Just well, what's the see, what's the difference you, with that book? You can see my shelves behind me, and it just depends. Again, most of the time it's Star Wars because they'll send me the book. Okay, let me read this right. book. Um, the one I just finished, what I was talking about, I just finished the Green Mile, Stephen King, which mm -hmm. I one of my Stephen King blind spots. But I got it at an estate sale with the original chapbooks, like the six parts. I, that, when I when I I first read it, when he put them out as those little those yeah. little novellas, yeah, Incredible. that was really cool. And, 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 I, if I had read it the other way, I feel like I would not have had the same experience and like how he was writing it and how he was. So I would read one a night was what I was doing. It was 90 pages. Like, right. Oh, that's easy. I can just do that. So it just depends. Again, it's just how I'm you know, dealing with the, or like right now I'm reading the book that I have now on my shelf is just Akira volume two. Right. And I have mm -hmm. the big hardcovers of the right. manga. So it's like, you know, that kind of thing. It just depends. But it is just kind of an interesting, you have a very different tactile experience because even when I'm reading on a Kindle, sometimes I'm like, oh, it says, 33%. What if I just got to 50 before I went to bed or whatever right. it is and you're kind of skimming a little bit more? It just and I like the little, I, I kind of like the little features when people like, oh, like like 500 people underlined this passage. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, people, so, like, a lot of people really liked this passage. Right, you know, right. It's cool. Especially like in an older book where I'm like, oh, this must be like a very, like Cormac McCarthy. I was like, oh, this is something that people really loved, this line, and it's been a long time that people have been reading this. Um, all that to be said, it there is an interesting aspect to your work specifically where Again, you're telling a story to tell a story. And obviously, financial stuff is very important and audience is very important and the scope of it all and movies kind of being held as this larger-than-life thing. And even, okay, not not to talk about Star Wars, but there is this weird thing right now where because something is live action, it is almost deemed more important than an animated counterpart, right? You're, you're, you're deeming it as like, some people feel that as, as the ultimate of that character or of that story is now that it's live action, it's important. And I do think that no matter the medium, I think it's interesting that the story is the story. It's important to tell the story in as many ways as possible and have that audience respond in any way that you can. I've, I've always found that weird. First of all, it's your podcast and it's a Star Wars podcast. You can you don't have to apologize <laughs> to, about talking about Star Wars. 
But no, I mean, I, I I think about this all the time because you know I've I've worked on animated Star Wars, I've worked on live action Star Wars, and I've heard it all the time. People saying like, oh, um, oh yeah, I haven't, I'm really into Star Wars. I haven't seen Rebels because like that's isn't that for kids? Like it's animated, and I'll never understand that point of view. And again, I haven't seen it, but I obviously now you know Ahsoka is obviously very closely associated with like literally some scenes from Rebels that they basically right. redid in live action, right? Um, I, I, I think there's there's this perception or this presumption that that content or that storytelling level uh, 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 that storytelling has now somehow been leveled up because now it's in live action but i th- i i i think it's bullshit i don't understand that at all i think it's <laughs> insulting to animation yeah. as an art form yeah. i mean look at look at the spider-verse movies does anybody think those are less than the live action Marvel Spider-Man movies? Of course not. They're arguably the best Spider-Man movies, the best superhero movies that have ever been made because they're phenomenal. Right. And the fact that they're animated and animated in that in that kinetic style, that, they, that that's what makes them awesome. That's what makes right. them more interesting than live action films. Um, there's a, a, a movie on Netflix right now called Nimona, yeah. which is my probably my favorite movie of the year so far. That's Gorgeous. an animated movie. Yeah. And I, I'll never understand that, especially when it when you see it in you see it in the Star Wars universe or the Marvel universe or any time where the where where the where the world is so big that it gets broken. Oh, now, now there's an animated version. Now there's a comic book. Now there's oh no, we're going to do a live action movie. That it always feels like oh the live action movie is like that's the peak, that's the pinnacle you want to get to. That's the best expression of this that, that can be right. achieved. But oftentimes we've seen when like anime and animation projects get anim- get adapted into live action, it's it worse works, and they yeah. and something is lost. Yeah. So the idea that the live action is somehow superior um, to animation or that this part of the Star Wars universe is somehow less worthy of your attention uh, because it's animated. Like you, you know that some of the best Star Wars storytelling has happened in the Clone Wars, has happened in Rebels, has happened in Visions, right? Letting each medium be the best that it can be for that medium is incredible. I just got Batman Mask of Phantasm, the 4K came out. I got that yesterday and I put it on and I'm like, oh, this is, is this maybe the best best Batman movie? Yes. <laughs> like it could, it, it very well could be. And the other thing that bugs me about, about that, because I heard it all the time, it was, oh, Rebels or, you know, oh, that's for kids though. Yeah, guess what? Star Wars is for kids. It always has been. The original movie is literally a cowboy and a wizard saving a princess with the help of a couple of, couple of robots. Does that sound like a grown-up story? Of course it's not. It's for kids. George Lucas famously said Star Wars is for 12-year-olds. And I agree. Star Wars is for 12-year-olds of all ages. right? When we're, I'm a 51-year-old man now, but when I go back and watch The Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi, it's the 12-year-old version of me that's watching and enjoying right. those films. Yeah. And, and there's something to be said about that. And that's that is the best when when media when anything can transport you to a different time or a different mindset or whatever it is, that's beautiful, and I think that that is something to capture. I think that telling new stories to capture that same emotion is interesting. I think then pushing yourself beyond that is also important. I think again when we're talking about storytelling, we're talking about Gundog, and then even like the Oliver image comic, like all these things where you're able to just tell your story the way that you just want to get that story out. I think is both commendable, but also an interesting push in seeing how your writing, how your stories, how your ideas can translate across any medium, right? And I think that's more than anything, uh, as a creative person or as someone aspiring to be creative, all you can really ask for at the end of the day, beyond having a, a bestseller, or beyond having the number one movie of all time or whatever it is, I think that that's, that's a commendable goal. 
it's scary as well. It's 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 both a blessing and a curse to have the additional creative freedom that goes with writing a book over making a movie. Screenwriters, including myself, complain all the time about you know the, the infamous studio notes and oh they meddled with the movie right. and took my creative vision away from me and yeah that happens all the time. But oftentimes notes are really good and when and, and sometimes like having a, the a team of like talented collaborators working with you. That's your safety net, right? Those yeah. are the people that are going to prevent you from making like bad decisions. Or someone say, oh, I make like, well, there's a reason why that might not work. And you go, oh, you know, you're right. I, I didn't think about it that way. Like all, all everyone's like a, everyone is kind of a safety net for each other. Um, when you are working by yourself and there's no one to tell you, don't do it this way, um, then yeah, you are you're fully responsible for the work in, in both good and bad. And I remember it was very liberating the, the, when I wrote my first novel. Back in 2015, I, as a screenwriter, I came to that from the world of, you know, studios essentially, not in so many words, but essentially saying either do these notes, either make these changes, or we'll find someone who will. Like, we'll just we'll just get rid of you. Like, right. we, are, we, are, we make the decision about what this movie is going to be like. Your job is to execute it. If you can't execute what we want, we'll find someone who will. Um, and so notes are often presented to you as kind of like a fait accompli and you can find like artful ways to, to work around them or, or, or do what screenwriters call finding the note behind the note. Like, what do you, what are you really, what are you really getting at here? Like when you right. say this, what do you really mean? And how can I give you that in a way that like also is, you know, creatively I can live with it. Um, and it's, that's it, an art form all its own. There's a lot of diplomacy and uh, involved. But I, and so when I wrote my first book and my editor that was assigned to me came back with her notes, many of the notes were brilliant. Again, there's my safety net, right? Oh yeah, you're right. I should do this differently. But every now and again, I would disagree with a note and say, oh no, like I really do, I, I really do want it to be the way I wrote it. Or I would say, I've got a solution, but it's not the one you're proposing. Like, what are we going to do here? And the editor would just say, well, look, if you don't want to change it, don't change it. It's your book. Right. I'm like, oh shit, really? Like I'm not fired? <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean fired? No, yeah. this is your book. You're actually... Yeah. Like that's where you that's where the word author comes from. Like you have the authority over the final creative work, and you don't have authority when when you're a screenwriter on a movie for the most part. Uh, again, unless you're a handful of people like Nolan or Tarantino or whatever, there's a very rare breed. There's unicorns. Um, you're you're just trying to like preserve your creative integrity, be able to be able to live with the work that you're doing and not get fired, right? And it's and you are constantly threading that needle. It's nice to know with something like Abomination or Oliver or Gundog or the original work or Eli, the original work that I've done, Eli doesn't really count because again, that went through a whole process, but it is mostly the movie that I wrote. But when it's, when I, when I have the final say, like I did with this new book, that's really liberating until the book comes out. And then you go, Oh shit, I did this without a safety net. There was no one really checking me. Like there wasn't edit. There wasn't editor that said, maybe do this or that. But sometimes I would kick it back and say, no, I wanted, I really believe I want to do it this way. And I felt really, really sure in all my creative decisions until the book goes to print and is out and you, know, you can't change it anymore. And then suddenly all the doubt, oh, but what, wait, what if the editor was right? What if I messed up? Like there was, there was, I didn't have like, I never want to be the smartest guy in the room. Like I desperately need someone smarter than me in the room to tell me like if, if an idea is good or bad, because I have my own instincts, but they can often be wrong and you need someone to, you know, to, to, to check your math. So it's, it's liberating and scary at the same time. Having said that, I wouldn't trade it. I, I would, I would take that trade-off every time. Give me full creative authority. Let me put it in front of you for good or bad. If you, I've said before, like with Rogue One, for example, there's a lot in that movie that I'll take credit for. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot that I won't. If someone says to me, as they often do, oh, I really like Chirrut and Bays, I'll always say, you should go tell that to Chris White's. Right. Because he added those characters in. Those were not in my script. And so that can be satisfying in its own way. But like if you, 
if you know when you read Gundog, if there's something you you particularly liked or particularly didn't like, I'll happily take all of the credit or all of the blame for it because I I don't get to point the finger at someone else. Yeah, and I mean you said it a little bit like having a good editor. I you know now that I'm doing a lot more published work, that is like I I almost get more joy out of like someone else being able to take the majority of what I was putting and make it even just a tiny bit better, right? Something that I could never do myself. That that helps so much in in learning and in the creative process and, and growing through it. And I do think, again, being able to publish your own things and make your own things, both a blessing, but also I think a, a huge responsibility. So I appreciate you just putting things out there and and, and, and seeing if they stick. And I can't wait to see what else what else yeah, it's it's a it's a it, maybe because I maybe it's because I'm a gambler. I lo- I love to go to Las Vegas and I'll happily post up at a blackjack table for like 20 hours, right? And the highs the highs and the lows like it's, it's never better than when you're on a run and making yeah. making a lot of money, but it's never worse than you know when you're down to the felt and cleaned out and you can't get a card to save your life and the dealer keeps pulling tens. It's like what the hell? Like it, it's but that's but that's it, that's what it's like to feel alive, right? I think we like gambling because it makes us feel alive. And we like being creative because it makes us feel alive. And every time I put an original piece of work out there, it's a creative gamble. And that for all of the scary stuff that comes with it, it it's 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 how I feel alive. Gary, thank you. <laughs> this is, I mean, uh, cathartic for me to talk through all this, but um, always always a huge pleasure to be able to to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much. And again, I appreciate the the opportunity to come back, like with no particular agenda other than, yeah. than to talk about. This was fun, actually. It's fun just to talk about the creative process and not always talk about like the minutia of the Star Wars universe. Hey, which hey, you anytime know, you want to talk about that either, I, I can I can. Uh... I can do that too, but yes. If I ever get around to watching the TV shows, I'll come back and we'll we'll get into all of it. it. But no, thank you so much. Uh, Gundog is in all the bookstores, and if you like it, please leave a review on Amazon. That really helps. I'm really proud of it. Um, Somebody said to me the other day in an interview, how is is Dakota Bregman, the, the, the hero of Gundog, like Jin Erso? And I was like, that's a, like, how is, I really? I, uh, but then I was like, oh, wait, hold on. They kind of are. They're both like these kind of scrappy, Young women that kind of grew up in a you know in a in a you know in a war torn world and had to kind of learn to live on their wits and and fight to survive you know because of the, the, their circumstances no parents um, yeah there's there's, a, there's if you like I would say if you like Rogue One if you like Jin and if you like that whole vibe there's a, a lot of that DNA is in is in Gundog as well so you might enjoy it love it well um, I can't wait to check it out for myself and. We will talk, I'm sure, very soon for... Yeah, uh, thanks for, so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Um, always yeah, well, I, you said four times now? My goodness. Four times, yeah. No, Don't like, you look know, like on um, SNL when you do when you host five times, you're in the five-timers club. You get a jacket. Well, think about what you can get. Uh, if we do a fifth, I'll, I'll start uh, yeah, we'll brainstorming. Have to come, yeah, we'll have to come up with something. I'll brainstorm what, what gift it could be. Um, but thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much again to Gary for always being willing to come on and talk. His new novel, Gundog, is available wherever books are sold. The link is in the show notes. We have a few more episodes in the works, including my conversation with Delilah S. Dawson, as well as Return of the Jedi creature legend, Judy Elkins. And if you're enjoying the show, please head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to these episodes and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really means the world. That's all for now. Until next episode, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.